like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will complete my examination of Dick's 1936, sorry, 1963 novel, The Game Players of Titan. So um, if you're just joining us, please go back and listen to the first three episodes where I go over the plot and the themes up into the climax of the novel. Um, but I'll just give you a short summary of what has happened up to this point. The story up to now, up to chapter, I guess, 14, 13, 14, has revolved around the experiences of a group of humans who play a Titanian game called Bluff, and they gamble for property and wives. The Titanians are aliens from Titan, the, the moon of Saturn, who have basically defeated Earth in a war and have put Earth under semi-occupation. With few humans left on Earth due to decreased fertility, many of the remaining humans are in a position known as bindmen, essentially feudal lords over mostly empty cities. There's only about 2 million humans left on Earth. Our main character is Pete, Peter Garden, and he's just lost the city of Berkeley as the story opens. This drives him into a depressive state. He is bipolar and heavily self-medicates. He tries to win his property back from a New York bindman named Jerome Luckman, who's trying to use the property of Berkeley in order to get involved with the game in California, because the game, game is played in groups in California. It's called Pretty Blue Fox, and this kind of segments the world and divides it up. It kind of keeps it equitable. Luckman, a very lucky in many ways character, is a real threat to the kind of the balance of power in California and among the bluff players there. The group of players who want to keep, who want to win, to, to basically to keep the ever lucky Luckman out of California are this group, Pretty Blue, Fo Pretty Blue Fox. His luck Luckman's luck extends to having many children as well. Few humans on the planet are fertile, and Luckman is one of the few with any children, and he actually has several. Garden eventually recruits the help of his out of uh, his out of luck former the out of luck former bindman Joe Schilling, who's running a record store in Oregon. Now, when Luckman turns up dead, a police investigation into the group Pretty Boo Fox commences, led by a human named Hawthorne and a Titanian, a Vug named E. B. Black. The finding of the investigations using telepathy is that six members of the group have lost memories and that the murder was a conspiracy of those six. Later on, on bail and preparing his defense with a new lawyer, Laird Sharp, that's the name of the lawyer, Garden finds out that his new wife of just a day or two is pregnant. He celebrates by going on a massive bender. Drunk and on drugs, Garden sees himself talking to a, sh a shrink who he starts to visualize as a vug. And then he's picked up by a young pretty woman with psionic abilities named Mary Ann McLean, who actually lives in his mother, Pat, her mother, Pat McLean, and Mary Ann live actually in San Rafael, which is the, the city that uh, that Garden still has. He's sexually attracted to both the mother and the daughter. 
But he starts to see Marianne McLean as a vlog as she drives him home. He develops a theory that the remaining humans are, are surrounded by a conspiracy of bugs. He finally gets home and he shares his finding to his wife and to his friend Joe Schelling. But they take him as basically drunk and hungover and just encourage him to rest. He wakes up and is kidnapped by Marianne McLean's parents, Pat and Alan, both of whom are psionics. Pat's ability is telepathy and Alan's ability is precognition. They kill a, the police detective Hawthorne who has come to report that the case against Peter Garden on the, the Luckman case is closed due to someone else confessing to the murder. Garden is then taken to a hotel where he's confronted by a large group of sides who reveal that they want to defeat the Vugs who are dominating Earth. Marianne is there and tries to explain to Garden that she was not a Vug and that he was just essentially delusional. He experienced what she called involuntary telepathy and instead of seeing her mind actually experienced the anxieties of her and the people in the group who are a group of on the surface anyways fertile humans who are challenging the domination of earth by the titanians they see as vug conspiracy so that's why he when he had this involuntary telepathy saw her as a vug because that's sort of how she they see the world as everyone might be a vug she's basically experiencing those anxieties of the group now, eventually, the, the group of, of size interrogate Marianne McLean and another psionic there, the precog David Moutreau, thinking that they are spies. Both eventually escape due to Marianne's psychokinetic ability. It is revealed that the psi people are actually Vugs posing as anti-Vug conspirators. Well, actually, in the group, there are psi people who get basically recruited by the Vugs and put on their side through various techniques. And then there's a bunch of people who are Vugs that appear as humans. The Vugs, through their psi abilities, are able to present themselves to other people however they want, often choosing a human form. So meanwhile, Joe Schilling is working out the mystery on his own of what happened to Peter Garden. With his lawyer, he tracks down the psychiatrist who saw Garden the day before, a man named Philipson. Now notice the name, Philipson, Philip K. Dick. He tells how he ran into Garden at a bar and talked with them. He says he often treats Vugs and talks to how the Vugs are broken up into two factions. There are moderates who want to be benevolent rulers over Earth and enjoy the game and, and maybe eventually dominate Earth through winning territories in the game, but essentially aren't hostile to humans. And then there are hardliners who want to eradicate humanity altogether. And we'll see later in the novel how the Vugs actually see humanity. Um, so the line between the moderates and the extremists may not be as far as we might think. But the way the extremists are, the hardliners are maintaining their power over humanity is by manipulating the birth rate to ensure that humanity is small and easily dominated. They killed Luckman, not because Luckman was a great bluff player or because he was building up territory or anything like that. He was killed simply because he was too lucky. That is, he had too many children. Philipson also shows that he is a psi individual himself and he has the ability to move people from Titan to Earth. And that's his one big ability. And this keeps him safe and also allows him to move people around. And it's one reason he's connected to Titanians who use him to transport themselves back and forth um, from Titan to Earth. They eventually confront him and ask Philipson to, to Philipson's car if he's a Vug. The cars run by AIs called Rushmores, as are many appliances and things, are various intelligence and... Um, autonomy and individuality the cars this car anyways can't tell a lie and follows orders so it says that Philipson is actually a bug 
He denies this still, but he sends Schilling off to Titan, who jumps into a game of bluff on the moon of Saturn. Joe eventually cheats, although he doesn't know he's cheating. He doesn't really understand how the game is played on Titan, and the game breaks down. During the game, he learns that the Vugs are in R4 controlling Earth, but they want to use the game as the means to do that, and he sees that they're actually playing for uh, ownership of, of Detroit, right? Now, Detroit was never, the game was never completed, so the Vugs don't win Detroit, but it's still up in the air that the Vugs are trying to get a foothold into Earth. He, after the game breaks down, he's returned to Earth. Now, with that out of the way, with the plot up to the climax of the novel out of the way, we can jump into my final coverage of the final four chapters of the Game Players of Titan, then talk about some of the themes, and then we'll, we'll be done with this, this rather fun book. Okay, so um, chapter 14. So Joe Schilling comes back to Earth, and Philipson explains how Joe cheated at the game. And what we learn is that on Titan, the use of psi powers in the game of bluff is actually a very complex process. On the one hand, they they see it seems very impossible. It seems impossible to play a game like bluff with psi abilities because the game, the way the game is played, is you pick a car that has a number, and then you can move your piece forward that many spaces and take benefit of whatever's written on there, or maybe take the hit, or you move a different number, and if they call you on a bluff, then you have to forfeit the money you would have gained, or the other way around. Um, if they call your bluff successfully, the other team gets the money. So it's not clear how this would work with Psy, people with Psy abilities. That's why on Earth they ban people with Psy abilities from playing the game. But what, what Philipson explains is that they use psychokinesis to change the value of the cards making it a game of really a contest of the wills and of psi more than just a game of, of bluff and kind of having a poker face. But since the game was broken, the stake Detroit remains up in the air. But the Titanians want to play bluff with humans in the future. Again, it seems as a way to enter into Earth and to claim territory there. Philipson, at this point, eventually confesses that he is a thug and an extremist, and he exiled Sharp to Titan as kind of a, a a chip that he can call on later. They go to a hotel room, the hotel room in which that meeting took place, to crash the meeting of size and Vugs that Garden was in, and they find that it was already broken up. Pat McLean runs, is running out of the hotel room, actually trying to escape whatever was going on in the hotel room, and eventually gets in a car and flies off into the sky. She's, it seems she's being projected into space, and Philipson thinks she's, she's being killed, although it's not clear at the time what, what actually is happening. And what they see inside is a pretty stunning scene. Quote, On the floor lay twisted bodies of men and women, tangled together like multi-armed monsters, as if they had been shaken and then dropped there, discarded. The remains jammed together, forced into an impossible fusion. Marianne McLean sat in the corner, her curled up, her face buried in her hands. Pete Garden and a well-dressed middle-aged man whom Schilling did not know together silently, their faces blank. So there was this, you know, basically a mass murder is what took place. Pete Garden eventually is, you know, talks to them and explains the powers of Marianne McLean, which are a type of psychokinesis, but it's almost at a molecular level. Philipson calls the ability she has the poltergeist ability and sees her as essentially dangerous and uncontrollable and, and wild and 
some something he wants to very much get away from. Philipson then eventually, because he's so afraid of Marianne McLean, negotiates an escape of himself to Titan in exchange for Sharp, who he returns to Earth, returns to his office. They call Sharp's office to confirm that he was indeed returned. Now they decide what they should do now that an extremist faction on Titan has suffered such a setback. And also, I guess, the moderates, the game players, also suffered a setback of their own. They call E.B. Black, who is not an extremist. He's a moderate. He's working with the humans. And he's, you know, he's kind of working within the framework of the military agreement that ended the war. E.B. Black asks about the incidents and gives a name to the extremists. He calls them the, the Wapenan. Schilling decides that they must put together their bluff group, Pretty Blue Fox, together in order to play the game players of Titan for stakes that may include the eventual freedom of Earth and the future of humanity. So what starts out as a very small story about a man losing Berkeley becomes a story of global significance. And I talked about this shift uh, that Dick makes in the middle point of the novel in the last episode. So they go back to their main meeting place of Pretty Boo Fox. It's Carmel, California, and they discuss their strategy. Essentially, they, they're debating whether they should bring size into the group, specifically Marianne. And Moutreau talks very directly about what's at stake in the contest. Quote, Pretty Blue Fox must be made to comprehend the issues involved. What the stakes are this time. It's not just an exchange of property deeds, not a competition among bind men to see who's top man. It's our old struggle with an enemy renewed after all these years, if it ever ceased in the first place. So that brings us to the end of, of chapter 14. Chapter 15. The first issue at the meeting of the of the Pretty Blue Fox group is the is the question of the introduction of the size. There's basically two two factions among the bind men. Some say that this would be the end of the game of bluff if they started letting size in. It's just too dangerous. And this game is so important to them. It's how they kind of manage their property. It's how they swap wives, which is very important for their fertility. You know, because so few people have kids, they have to actually swap partners a lot. They create a system for doing that tied up with the game. But Schilling and Garden insist that there are bigger stakes involved and that the defeat of the Vugs, they'll, they'll need to use any means possible, even if it means breaking the game. Now, we see a common theme of Philip K. Dix in this chapter, and that is the question of the persistence of tradition and the need to overcome traditional thinking in order to survive. And this plays out in novels like The Man Who Japed and uh, Dr. Futurity and novels like that. And it's also a subtle suggestion to the frontier ethos in which this idea in a lot of his early novels that it's through the frontier that one can escape cult kind of cultural stagnation or the, the old way of things. Dix, as I've suggested when we looked at The Man in the High Castle, Dick is starting to, to turn on the frontier in fundamental ways by, by these novels and certainly by the next novel we're going to look at, uh, Martian Time Slip. Now, just as they're negotiating this, a man, Nat Katz, comes in. We met him first briefly, or he's mentioned early in the story, um, when actually Marianne McLean first is introduced to the story. She goes to Schilling's record store and she asked, do you have any records of Nat's cats? Good grief, no, Schilling said. He turned around and said to Pete, my day's ruined. A pretty girl comes in and asks for a Nat's cat record. And chagrin, he walks back to Pete. Who's Nat Katz? Pete asked. The girl, roused by amazement from her shyness, said, you never heard of Nat's cats? Clearly, she could not believe it. Why, he's on TV every night. He's the greatest recording star of all time. And then that, that's all we hear about him. And she's mentioned, mentioned once more 
when Garden was drunk and or hung over in the car and Marianne McLean was taking him home and he asked something like, this all has to do with Nat's cats and it's almost like a joke. And she says, yes, he's at the center of it. So Nat's cats comes in and Pete deduces that Nat's is with the Vugs. He goes out to think about this and he takes a drive back to uh, his home, this, the empty city he still owns, San Rafael, and he kind of drives via the Pacific. He actually crosses the Pacific for a while and he thinks about suicide. And he even gets confirmation from his car, Cars Rushmore, it's AI, that if he, were to cry, if he ordered the car to crash, would it do it? And the, the car said, yeah, I would do it. So he almost kills himself there, but as we learn later on, he's actually more of like a pill guy. You know, he's kind of a, a, someone who will kill himself with alcohol and drugs before he would just shoot himself or, or smash his car. So he eventually goes back home to San Rafael, visits his house, and there he meets David Moutreau. Moutreau, you know, people move very fast in this book all over. I mean, the, the device for this Dick uses as the cars that they can just zip around the earth very quickly. People like go out for coffee halfway across the world, you know, but, you know, people are always moving around. It's, you know, it's sometimes you almost need a chart to keep track of how people get around in this book. But anyways, he meets David Moutreau and Moutreau reveals he's working for the Vugs along with Pat McLean, who Moutreau thinks, thinks thanks to his precog ability is not dead. The reason Moutreau crossed over was the influence of Nat's cats, a very powerful telepath and very powerful Vug. In fact, he's the leader of the Wa Peinan extremist faction on Earth. Moutreau announces that they want to recruit Peter to infiltrate Pretty, Pretty Blue Fox in order to end the game and, and stop the game from ever happening. The extremists do not want to use legal means to resolve the issue. They want to continue with their subversive tactics of, of kind of underground surveillance, terrorist activity, and then suppressing the birth rate. That's their main tool for keeping humanity, you know, under their boot. So that's the plan that the extremists want to do. They eventually meet with Pat McLean. Moutreau suggests that while Pete is suicidal and came home probably get drugs to affect this suicide, he's actually close to solving the problem of how to beat the Vugs, and therefore maybe it's not a good idea to kill himself, especially to how to beat the Vugs at Bluff. Pat tells him to the direct question, how can you beat people who have at a game of bluff when they have the ability to read minds? And Pat tells him that Vugs normally suppress their telepathy while playing using drugs. Now, it's kind of a weird scene because Patricia is panicking. She's trying to get away from Marianne and get off planet and things like that. She's like packing up stuff, but she has the time to explain this to Pete Garden. It says, it lessens the schizophrenic delusion because it obliterates the, the or it eradic it obliterates the obliterates the involuntary telepathic sense. It eradicates the paranomic response to the picking up of subconscious hostilities in others. The Titanians possess medication which acts along the same lines as them, and the rules of the game as they practice it require them to lose their talent or at least abort it to some extent. So that's how they play. But how do, how can they play with humans? And how can humans assure that this is that their their abilities are being suppressed? Peter realizes that the solution is therefore to create a totally random game of bluff. Suppress the precog abilities and suppress the telepathic abilities of everyone and move without looking at the cards so as to assure that it is not known by anyone. So it's just a random guess whether someone is bluffing or not on both sides. Pete insists that 
he will not work with the Vugs, and eventually there's a fight between Peter or between Pete and Dave and Pat. Marianne, who has just arrived, also intervenes, killing her mother quite brutally. Actually, she she pleads using her motherhood as the the case, but Marianne kills her anyways. Marianne then tells Peter that they need David and she and that she killed Nat's cats in a very brutal way as well by actually moving transporting a glass inside of him into his heart so the heart stopped essentially now they have all the pieces they need to attempt to win even though marianne is entirely insane and david mutro has already proved he can't be trusted but both are essential to victory the plan again is to use chems to reduce the psi power of the vugs announcing that it's necessary in the name of fairness still they will randomize the game by not looking at the cards and then moving to reduce the power of any telepathy that may remain. Moutreau, meanwhile, the precog, will move the pieces. If his power is not reduced, his moves will not be bluffed, since he will know the outcome. If it is reduced, the move will be a bluff. They will then control the amount of chems in Moutreau's body to reduce or increase his talent as strategy dictates. So that's essentially the plan. It's a bit complicated, but that's basically it's, it's trying to manipulate psi powers in order to, to, to not really cheat at the game, but to match the cheating that the Vugs will do because they have these psychic abilities, these psi abilities. Okay, chapter 16. They eventually explain to Moutreau he will, that he will play with for them using Marianne as the threat, saying Marianne will kill you if you don't cooperate. They go to Carmel for the game, expecting the Vugs to arrive. And they actually meet four people who appear just as them. So there's a Vug simulacrum of Pete Garden, a Vug simulacrum of Joe Schilling, a Vug simulacrum of Moutreau, and one for Marianne McLean. And the stakes are clear at this point. If they lose, the Vugs will replace the humans in Pretty Blue Fox and continue to expand their holdings on Earth and play the game. And basically, so they're, they're competing for the future of Earth, the future of human sovereignty, and their own lives. The Vugs agree to the condition set by Peter, thinking that it will balance the game. So the Titanians then move the game to Titan to the surprise of all the pretty blue fox players. They play the game and nearly lose, but in the last few moves, they actually are able to turn the tables on the Vugs and eventually defeat them. With the stakes of Titan and Earth, the Vugs cannot hide their anxiety as the game progressively turns against them. The final move is actually made by Pete Garden, who enhances his own telepathic, latent telepathic abilities by taking a drug, the same type of drug cocktail he took on his drunken binge in which he started to see people as Vugs. So he does this in order to create an involuntary telepathy, that the same one he experienced before. It works, and he catches the Vogue bluff, and this ends up winning the game. And then we get to chapter 17. In the final chapter of the book, we see the aftermath of this critical game of bluff. The Titanians are actually sore and very childish losers. They can't believe they lost to a species they see entirely below them. But they seem to be honest about giving autonomy back to humans after the game. They will not do it right away, though. So in their anger, they basically flip the, you know, when they saw they were losing, they sort of flipped the table. Same thing that happened to um, Joe Schilling when he was there for the game, and he sort of cheated by not understanding the way the game's played on Titan. So they expel the humans from Titan, actually first placing them in a strange vacuum, atomizing them, separating the group off. And that's kind of an interesting theme because Pretty Blue Fox strength seems to come from, even though they compete amongst each other, their strength seems to come from their 
cooperation and when they worked together, like even when they murdered Luckman, they had to do it collectively. But the Titanians here then atomized them and spread them out. And each player then has a subjective experience as they're as they're sent out into like the void and then gradually one by one return to Earth. We get a small glimpse of Freya Gaines, who's actually Pete Garden's ex-wife, who feels only resentment and bitterness and the desire to hurt and kill. Joe and Peter are unable to trust each other initially since the Vugs can appear as them. Marianne sees what has been done more objectively. They have atomized the group, breaking them up and taking away the biggest source of their power. We also learn through Marianne McLean's view really the subjective reality of how the Vugs actually see humanity. Quote, he atomized us, she thought, as if, as if we're each of us in an extreme psychosis, isolated from everyone else and every familiar attribute in our method of perceiving time and space. This is frightened, hating isolation, she realized. And it must be that. What else could it be? It can't be real. And yet, perhaps this is fundamental reality beneath the conscious layer of the psyche. Maybe this is the way we really are. They're showing us this, killing us with the truth of ourselves. Their telepathic faculty and their retreat to mold and reform minds to infuse them. She retreated from the thought. And then below her, she saw something that lived. Stunted alien creatures warped by enormous forces into miserable, malformed, distorted shapes. Crushed down until they were tiny and blinded. She peered at them. The waning light of a huge dying star lit and relit the scene, and then, even as she watched, it faded into dark red, and upon, and, and at last utter blackness snuffed it out once more. Faintly luminous, like live organisms inhabiting a vast depth, the stunted creatures continued to live after a fashion, but it was not pleasant. She recognized them. That's us, Terrans, as the Vugs see us, close to the sun, subject to immense gravitational forces. She shut her eyes. I understand, she thought. No wonder they want to fight us. To them, we're an old, waning race that's had this period and must be compelled to abandon the scene. And then the Vugs, the glowing creatures weightless, drifted far above, beyond the range of the crushing pressures, the blunted dying creatures, on the little moon, far from the great ancient sun. It's a really great moment in the book where she starts to see reality from a more objective standpoint and from the Vug point of view for the first time. Now, meanwhile, E.B. Black intervenes, and he actually talks to the other Vugs, and he's the one who forces the Vug players to agree that the humans won. So this saves the group. He explains that he intervened and forced the game players to accept the resolution of the game, but also points out that they're not going to accept it at once, and they're not going to accept it very willingly, and they're kind of sore losers. The decolonization of Earth, in other words, will take a while. Schilling finds himself in a record store, his record store in Oregon, he calls his car and asks it to come get him, and again, the car resists. And this is a running joke throughout the book that the car doesn't seem to respect Joe Schilling and always talks back to him. Pete Garden is in Berkeley, his old home with Carol, and so he's happily back in his own home and enjoying that. They celebrate their winnings and hope that the fertility rates will increase. They even think maybe he will win Berkeley back again someday. So I guess Berkeley went to Luckman's heir who or wife, who's not thought of as a particularly good player. So there's hope that Berkeley will go back to Pete Garden. David Moutreau reflects on his situation. He asks the car to confirm that he's human, and it does. And he thinks about Pretty Blue Fox celebrating and how he's going to be left out because he's not trusted. So his betrayal of, of humanity has left him isolated and alone at the end of the story, while the members of Pretty Blue Fox will presumably get back together and rebuild their community after being atomized. And then Freya Gaines, however, is wandering, full of anger, unable to return to her life. She runs into Dr. Phil Philpson, of course, a Vug, 
who seems to recruit Freya into the extremist faction. And that is how the game Players of Titan ends. So overall, I think it's a lot of fun. It's thematically quite rich. And it's a bit rushed, I think. I, I think it's rushed and Dick doesn't do enough time explaining things. And sometimes he really needs people to move around. So he'll change settings a lot in one chapter. And they can be, you know, a bit jarring to read if you don't take your time with it. But it's still, I think, it's just fun. I think it's it's a rather enjoyable novel of his. I, I did write down a bunch of themes that we could summarize and talk about that I think uh, that that really are at the core of this novel. And there's a lot, you know, if you actually, I, I picked 12. And so that's that's a lot to, to put into one story. But that's what Dick really does a lot of in the in the 60s. One theme, of course, is is population. Um, so we have through a lot lack of fertility the end uh, the end of the human race is is visible the only reason anyone's are many people are really left at all is because of so many of them are jerry's their life extend life extending technology allows humans to live for over 100 years and that's kind of kept humanity around despite the low birth rate but most people aren't having kids and so that basically there's really no future anymore and so that's one reason you get the sense of this pettiness of it and i think in some ways the whole novel is a criticism of some aspects of, of bourgeois life the, the kind of the petty conspicuous consumption this you know ex this you know this desire to have the most attractive wife or to have the most kids everything is very much about what is visible and what's conspicuous among these bindmen. Um, but the, the deep reality, though, of these people is that they are sterile. They, they have no future. And that's because of population. And this is something because of low population and low fertility. And it's something Dick's going to come back to in a lot of his work, especially do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but also some stories such as The Pre-Persons or Dr. Futurity didn't really have, well, their population was controlled, so it was stable, but it, it was not dynamic, right? And here, population is just kind of on a slow decline. It's, it's kind of like children of men in that way. Now, we have a lot in here about reality and subjectivity, especially with uh, the, the, the nature of the role of drugs in, in transforming reality. And we have, especially at the, that last scene, the one where Marianne McLean is able to look at the world, look at humanity as the bugs see humanity, and to see humanity as as petty, as small, as heavy, because it was too close to the sun, this, this heavy gravitational pull, stunted, over, burdensome, and, and, you know, that's all a subjective experience, right? But, you know, this is something Dick cares a lot about. He wrote a whole book about subjective views of reality called Eye in the Sky, and I did a whole series on that novel a while back. So, you know, what is real is a big theme here, and especially when you get to the middle point of the novel, it, it comes up more and more. Another thing we have here is colonialism. Uh, Dick's entire career is basically during the period of decolonization and the debate about the legacy of colonialism. And so he, it's not surprising that a lot of his stories deal with colonialism in various ways, or some of this stuff can be metaphors for the Vietnam War. I don't, I'm not sure this book is, but I think what we have here is a, a clear colonial setting in which the Vugs present themselves as benevolent rulers, but actually Deep down, there's a faction of them that have much more insidious goals, which really they're after the genocide, the eradication of humanity. Yet, despite this idea that there's different factions and there's like the good good cop, bad cop kind of relation, 
they all actually view humanity as pathetic and, and worthless, whether they're the moderates or not. And then at the end, that the fact that these all-powerful vugs are presented as just sore losers and a bit like whiny children who, who, you know, break the table when they lose the game. I, I wonder if actually this is, this Dick got this idea for the story when he was playing like Monopoly or something with his kid at risk, and he was about to win, and the the kid just toss the table um, over and refuse to finish the game rather than lose because the Vugs do it twice in the, in the book. Um, it, it kind of puts a different context on this idea that Marianne has at the end of the Vugs being kind of the young new race and the humans being the old race. The humans are actually physically old. They, most of them are over 100 years old thanks to, uh, I think they do something with the gland that keeps them to live longer. But anyways, I'm getting off topic of colonialism. Here. But certainly we have a colonial relationship and, and, it's, and it's undercut by the reality of what the Vugs really are like deep down. Okay, posthumanism runs throughout the whole book. Dick wrote a lot of stories about posthumanism, and I've talked at length in the, this podcast when we looked at the stories about Dick's changing and diverse views on the posthuman or the mutant. Here we have mutants presented as both serious threats, people who can manipulate reality but also people who can just kind of help out and be helpers and and that's something you're going to see more and more in the 60s are precogs as basically people who can help help out work you know maybe you can hire them and they can you know do a job for you um so i wouldn't say in this novel the posthumans are in general a threat but some particularly are certainly marianne mclean is presented as almost a true posthuman in that she's beyond humanity both morally, she kills her parents, she's brutal, she really can't make connections, she's a bit of a, uh, a Jezebel kind of character too. Uh, we're going to see that again with other, with other um, characters in other novels. The young woman who's like dangerous sexually. Again, I think Dick's maybe drawing some of this stuff from life. So anyways, you know, it's a post-human book. It's a book about the mutants. And so if you were to make a list of Dick's post-human works, this would certainly be one of the major ones that do that. I'm, You know, and it fits within the gamut of, of the kind of stories he's, he's been writing. And certainly the abilities aren't anything new here. Except, like I said, transport. I, I, we've never seen that before. Uh, a side ability that allow people to transport between two, two places. Then we have wars and games. That's kind of that's one thing joined together, and that is games as war, or or games as war by their means, or war as a game. Uh, a lot of stories have real war presented in superficial ways by certain people, despite being very brutal. Um, even in the Variable Man, you have wars fought as simulations before actually being fought. Um, what else? Oh, war game where toys are used to kind of undermine the ideology of, of Earth. Uh, even back to the little movement, one of his first stories where toys are actually fighting a proxy war on Earth using kids and, uh, you know, manipulating adults and things. So Dick, and then in the future story, he's going to have uh, the Zap Gun, which is all about the relationship between toys and consumer goods and war. So he, you know, I think he takes war very seriously, but... I think he's criticizing the fact that so many people don't take war very seriously and see it as a game. And, you know, that's why you have these representations of war as, as a game or a game as an extension of, of war. Because I think in his perception of the media, 
and in popular perception of war, it gets it gets fuzzy. Those lines get fuzzy, get a little bit fuzzy. Okay, another theme: working within rules and breaking rules and bending rules. I mean, especially when you're dealing with a plot that surrounds a game and and a culture of people that are really focused on the rules because it has such high stakes that people follow the rules. At one point where they decided that Pete Garden needs to be married, but he has to roll a three. So he has to go through this ritual of actually rolling dice until he gets a three before he can actually marry someone, you know, because they really cared about the rules. But then to win the game at the end, they have to break the rules and push the boundaries of the rules. Uh, and I think that's true for, for our systems. And I think it's sometimes it's, it's true of, of our relationships and, and many things. If we're too firm in our rules, we become rigid and not very flexible. And then we end up kind of going down with the ship. I think we have a lot here also on group solidarity. Um, on one hand, it's the humans versus the Vogs, but particularly that we got this human community of, of pretty blue fox that despite competing amongst themselves via the game are still very close and, and they're friends. They actually swap wives quite regularly. So they, they, they know each other sexually. They've known each other for years. They, they do work together when they have to. So I think that the dynamics of Pretty Blue Fox is kind of interesting. And then you have the extremists as well as the Psy Underground, which is kind of... Apparently there was a Psy Underground at one point, but it got infiltrated by the bugs. So these are other examples of group solidarities that are active in this novel. Next, we have the parent-child relationship, certainly between Marianne McLean and, and her parents, which is a very traumatic, dysfunctional relationship ending with the murder of a parent by a child. Um, but we have other parent-child relationships that he's talked about. We got Pete Garden, who's depressed for most of the novel, who, who finds hope in the fact that he might have a child with his new wife, and that might be something that he can project into the, project into the future, give him some meaning in life. Um, we hope, anyways, that Pete Garden can overcome his depression, and maybe his relationship with Carol and his, and his new child will, will help solve that, will help, help him do that. Um, tied to this is marriage. I, I think the most interesting aspect about marriage here is its flexible nature, that there's no firm commitment to monogamy in any kind of to total sense. Yeah, you're still not supposed to cheat on your wife, although Pete Garden, he marries Carol and then the next day he's already going out with a young 18-year-old girl who's, I guess, almost a tenth his age or something, uh, you know, out, to, out for drinks with the hopes of seducing her. He ends up just getting drunk, so it doesn't happen. But, you know, he's, he's already like looking around at other women. And he's had, you know, a bunch of wives over the years. Carol had 15 husbands. So what we have here is, is serial monogamy, I, I suppose. And we also have jealousy. Freya Gaines is very jealous, when she, but not jealous about sex so much, but jealous about the fact that Carol is pregnant. And that's what leads her in her unfortunate end. So anyways, the, the idea of a liquid marriage or a marriage as an extension of kind of capitalist relationships, whatever you want to do with it, there's a lot of ways you can interpret that. Um, Another thing, herb, cities. Cities are the main currency in this world. And they're also like the playthings of the elites. It's, it, we have kind of a neo-feudal situation. Now, it's made possible by the fact there's so few humans left on Earth that these cities basically are meaningless to pass around. But I, I do think sometimes with the gated community slum dynamic in a lot of our cities, cities are increasingly becoming playthings of the elite, of the ruling class. And 
while there are a lot of people in cities, their presence doesn't matter as much to people in gated communities. We'll see more of that in, in books like uh, The Penultimate Truth. Drugs, drugs run throughout this whole book. It's, I think this might be his first novel that really focuses on drug use. Certainly there's some in his other earlier stories, but nothing quite like this. Never, never do we have a character up to this point, like a Pete Garden who's high all the time and characters who are obsessed with drugs and, and, and are basically pharmacists in their not knowledge of drugs. I mean, that, that's one thing you notice when you read these 1960s novels is all the characters are, are pharmacists. They, they know all these drugs by heart. And it's probably because Dick was using a lot of over-the-counter speed at the time and I think some other drugs too. So mostly to help him write, but he, he, Dick was a bit of a pharmacist by this point in his life, and it, it projects itself onto the page. So there's a lot of, of drug use here, certainly, and it's a very crucial plot point at the end to suppress abilities. But then sometimes it helps him see reality when it kind of unlocks this involuntary telepathy. Other times it's presented as something that really suppresses knowledge and suppresses truth. And there's, it's, it's not clearly one or the other. It's, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. And then finally, mental illness. I think we have to talk about that as a theme in this book. Most importantly, Peter Garden, again, is mentally ill. He, he's, I mean, he's bipolar and it's, he makes bad decisions because of it. And he has difficulty being happy. And all we can do at the end is hope for the best for him. Hope that his, his new marriage will work out. But we have other characters who are borderline mentally ill. We have a Rushmore who doesn't follow its orders of its master, Max, that's Joe Schilling's car that we might consider mentally ill. We have the extremist faction of the Vugs, who we might claim have a bit of mental illness. And then we also have Mary Ann McLean, who is a bit psych psychopathic and it seems her powers are connected to that. So there really, we should focus on Peter garden, but there's other characters here who might uh, have mental illness. And um, here it's a rather sympathetic portrayal. I think of, 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 of a bipolar individual manic depressive. So anyways, uh, those are what I think the major themes of the game players of Titan are. So I think that's going to do it for this, this novel. So read it. It's a lot of fun. If you, if you haven't been reading along, check it, check it out. It doesn't take long. Um, so what's next on this podcast? Well, um, our first, our next job is to look at the stories Dick wrote in 19 or published in 1963. And there are four of them, but I'll only do three episodes on it because two are actually direct sequels. They're, I think they're actually written like one issue apart. They're standby and what do we do with Raglan Park? These are I'll look at these in one episode. We got the days of Perky Pat and if there was no Benny Simoli. So that would be a, a fourth story. And so I'll get those four stories out of the way. And then we're going to enter 1964 and Dick published one, two, three, four, maybe five novels in 1964. Um, Martian Time Slip to Simulacrum, Clans of the Elephant Moon and The Penultimate Truth. So we're going to do a few stories, get those out of the way, and then jump right back into some of his greatest novels of, of the mid-1960s. So that does it for, for now. Um, please leave your thoughts about the Game Players of Titan below. Uh, what did you think of this novel? What did I leave out? What did I forget? What, you know, what did I get wrong? Just please um, 
add to the conversation as much as you can. I really appreciate it. So again, thanks so much for listening. I will be back next time with, I think it's Days of Perky Pat, um, the short story. So see you then. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.